my fellow thespians, it is I, Testicles, and I have come to present my new script for our next act of theatre here. And I, I do hope you will all take... Is it a comedy or a tragedy? Actually, my fellow uh, thespians, it is neither comedy nor tragedy. It is... Boo! Mixed genres! Boo! You are a disgrace to Athens! Please, please, my, my fellow brothers, I... Please, my play is but a mixing of comedy and tragedy, and I call it the satyr. Boo! The satyr! Boo! Please, brothers, please, we don't like mixing the genres! It's gauche! Please, please, my fellow Grecians, hear me out! <gasps> Here comes Aristotle! Aristotle's coming, everybody! <gasps> Aristotle! Aristotle! Did you see it's Aristotle? Oh, God, I love Aristotle! I want to have sex with Aristotle at the next orgy! Oh, my God! Hello, everyone. It is I, Aristotle. Testicles, I heard that you have written a play that is mixed genres. Might I refer you back to my treatise, comma, manifesto on art, wherein I clearly state that there are but two genres of theater, the tragedy, wherein good men fail, and the comedy, wherein bad men succeed. Yes, I'm sorry, Testicles, but your play is just not... What's the word? Good. I'm sorry you have violated the rules of the theater by mixing the genres. Yours are... Your writing will be forgotten to the ages. Due to its lack of artistic merit, I'm terribly sorry, Testicles. All right, who wants to put on... Who wants to put on Antigone again? Yeah, we love it! Let's do... Don't mix the genres! Yeah! We love you, Aristotle! <laughs> I know. I know. I will, I will show you all. You say that my mixing of genres is gross, but I tell you that one day, one day the theaters will overrun with more genres than you'll ever dream of. One day we will be not want for boxes to put our artistic dreams in. <gasps> Go fuck yourself, Aristotle. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome back to Ruben Uncut. Today's topic, satire. What is it? Why is it so goddamn nebulous? Well, we're going to start. So we'll start there. What is satire? This is a question that mainstream societies tend to struggle with. And kind of for good reason. Let's go back to the original satire here. The satire. It actually comes from the word for, you know, those little half-man, half-goat people. Because 
satire, when it was originally written, was considered to be a sort of mixing of the genres, which was kind of a, a, a gauche thing to do in ancient Greece, but people did it still. Even though, even though it was not as popular as, you know, things that were defined by the rules that Aristotle set out. Side note, Aristotle basically created art and science, at least as far as the West is concerned. Obviously, places in the East also had art and culture and stuff too. But our Western, our Western concept of a lot of these things sort of came from Aristotle and, you know, culturally appropriating other people. Although in a way, white people have culturally appropriated Greek culture, which was originally appropriated by the Romans, who then appropriated everything. I'm getting off topic. The satire was a mixing of the two genres. The two genres, of course, if you were paying attention to the skit I did at the beginning of this podcast, of course, were tragedy and comedy, defined the way that Aristotle put them out there. But satire was meant to be a mixing of the two, uh, both comedy and tragedy. Which is possibly why it is a genre that meets a mixed response among mainstream audiences. Now, a lot of people also struggle with the concept of how to define satire. It's kind of one of those things where you know it when you see it, but it's hard, it's sort of hard for people to put out in words. So allow me to use an example that I feel like can best describe this. I'm going to be pulling from two musical comedians here to give you a sort of a way to define this for yourself. Because satire could easily be mistaken for parody and vice versa. So we have so maybe we can define these things by saying, what is the difference between satire and parody? For this, I would refer to this. Two artists, Weird Al Yankovic and Bo Burnham, both of whom are geniuses and just incredible artistic talents pretty much all over. Weird Al is parody, and Bo Burnham does more satire. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, allow me to state up front that not everything that we... Which is not to say that Weird Al has, doesn't have some satire or satirical elements in some of his songs. In fact, I would argue that the song Don't Download This Song is, in fact, satirical. And Bo Burnham, not all of his songs are satirical. Many of them are just silly and fun or talk about something from everyday life. But their basic artistic approaches are very different. Weird Al is taking a recognizable piece of music and he is changing the lyrics to make them irreverent. That is how he writes a lot of his songs. Now, to be fair, he does also do songs like Don't Download This Song, which, like I said, is more satirical. Why is that song that Weird Al does more satirical than his other songs? Allow me to explain. First of all, Don't Download That Song is not based off a specific song where he has changed the lyrics. Weird Al's instead has taken a genre of music. He has taken the benefit song, the call in and donate this money song. It's a genre of music, weirdly enough. And he has taken it and 
He has taken the genre itself and not a specific song. And he is instead taking the elements of that song to construct a new satirical point that is being made. He's making fun of the idea that art, that pirating will prevent artists like himself and other super wealthy rock stars from becoming wealthy. That's what the song is about. He is making fun of an element of society that we can see with our eyes. Rock stars are rich and it is absurd to worry about them. It is absurd to make a benefit song to try and help people not pirate music. These elements, when combined, are a satirical point that an aspect of life itself is, is absurd. Satire says that life is already absurd. Now let's look at Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham's music is more satirical. Now don't get me wrong, lots of, like I said, lots of Bo Burnham songs are just silly and fun. But Bo Burnham does other songs like his country stadium music song, Pandering, which is an aggressive jab at modern stadium country rock. He is specifically pointing at elements of that genre of music and what makes it distasteful. He is mocking it with an intended purpose. And the jokes he is making are meant to be funny because they are true. And this is sort of why satire it can be confusing to people. Satire is an uncomfortable combination of two different types of being funny. One of them is sarcasm, and the other I would almost have to refer to as anti-sarcasm. So yes, satire does use sarcasm frequently. Frequently the point of satire is that the thing is bad. The thing at the center of the story is the problem. Satire focuses on the fact that something is problematic, but also points to the fact, oh, I'm about to make this confusing. Let me back that up there. I need an example to make this coherent. So, Rick from Rick and Morty, or Walter White from Breaking Bad, Tyler Durden from Fight Club. The, you thought that these characters are the heroes of their story. You have misunderstood the point of their stories. The point is that these people are damaged. That these people are making questionable decisions and bad choices. But a satire treats these people as our hero. They are in the center of the story. It is their journey. But the point is not to identify with their journeys, unless, of course, you are identifying with the part of yourself that is broken. These are characters who are not good guys. They are inherently abusive, fucked up people who make bad choices. And one of them technically is a mental illness who doesn't exist. I don't mean the mental illness doesn't exist. I mean, his, he is a mental manifestation of someone else's. If you've seen Fight Club, you know what I mean. 
If you haven't seen Fight Club, I just gave you a huge spoiler. Although, the movie is still entertaining. But the point is, is that you're not really supposed to agree with these people. They are wrong. They might have reasons they have justified to themselves for what they are doing. But the point is, is that we are watching the story of someone who is wrong. Someone who is making the wrong choices. Even if they frequently come out on top. Which, that's an aspect of comedy. Bad people succeeding. The point of, say, Rick, is that he sucks, and yet he is also one of the most capable human beings in the world, but he cannot get around to relating to actual human beings in a way that is healthy. That's his Achilles heel. Let me back up. So this is the other point of satire. Satire normally has a point, something that it is desperately trying to point out, ridicule, or say about society. And this is the part of satire that is the anti-sarcasm. The joke of the two types of jokes that appear in satire are I'm saying this like it's a good thing, so you know I mean it's a bad thing. That's the sarcasm. The anti-sarcasm, the anti-sarcasm is the part of satire where it says, by the way, I'm saying this is a joke, but I'm also meaning it. In other words, something that is both facetious but true. Many times we say, oh, I'm just kidding. But the thing is that satire is not just kidding. If satire were to say, I'm just kidding, it would no longer be satire. At the end, satire can either be sarcastic or anti-sarcastic, pointing to something as wholly true, but also saying, hey, you have to laugh at this thing, otherwise, what are you going to do? Fucking cry about it? So what are... Now, that being said, satire, unlike parody, also doesn't really have to be laugh-out-loud funny. Satire does not need to do that. Many satires are not extremely gut-bustingly funny. A great example of this would be American Psycho, which is definitely a satire. But it's also not like a laugh-out-loud funny movie at any given point. And this is and it's also a film that is often claimed by horror fans, which it can be. Satire does not have a distinction of sticking to one genre. The other thing about satire is that the target is normally society itself. You don't normally see a satire of a genre itself unless it's trying to use that genre as something that says something greater about society. A satire would not waste its time satirizing a specific type of movie. Like, Police Academy is not a satire, it is a parody. Because parody often is a surface level read of making fun of something. Where, it can, where parody can still be saying, ha ha ha, I'm just kidding, isn't this silly? Satire does not necessarily do that. Although, parody and satire can inter-exchange, say something like South Park. South Park 
contains both satirical elements and parody elements. To be fair, satire is South Park is also a cartoon, meaning that it has a loose reality. Does, sat, does it technically have a tighter reality than, say, something like Family Guy? Yes, because South Park ultimately has continuity. And it rarely abandons things. It never abandons its reality. This is another thing that has to be noted as the difference between a satire and a parody. A satire has a fixed reality, unless, of course, that satire was trying to satirize something that did not have a fixed reality. But, you know, we're that's a whole other can of worms. Let's focus on the basics here. A satire does not break its own reality for a joke. A satire is inherently a, has a stable universe. The satire is meant to look real. Meanwhile, a parody is essentially a cartoon. It will break its reality for a joke. In fact, this is sort of a thing you can use to measure if something you're watching is more of a parody or more of a satire. Does it have a stable reality? Or is it willing to abandon reality for a lot of jokes? Which is not to say this, just for the record, is not the same thing as having something with meta humor. Meta humor is a whole other can of worms that we won't get into right now because it will only confuse the matter. But both genres can feature meta humor. Let me, let's look to another example of a movie. Oh wait, let me explain the American Psycho real thing, real quick, because I almost got sidetracked on that. So American Psycho is a satire that creates its satire by presenting the concept that an 80s Wall Street trader type person, wait, was that his job? been forever since I saw this movie. But essentially like an 80s go-getter yuppie type and juxtaposed him as a person who is also a serial killer. The idea being there that 80s, Reagan, 80s Reaganomics are essentially the mindset of a serial killer. And that's the satire, that juxtaposition in that film. Is the film laugh out loud funny? No, but it's saying something deliberate using a juxtaposition that is satirical. It's saying these things are alike. And that's the point of the film. So now I'm going to go to Don't Look Up. <clears throat> now, Don't Look Up is a movie that some people do not agree on. Some people seemed confused by it being a satire. Um or who didn't feel like it was that satirical. The major complaint being is that they felt like the film presented things that were too obvious. First of all, I don't believe in that. Not too, don't get me wrong, there's a thing about telegraphing stuff in your movie where you're making it way too obvious. But things that are obvious is a spectrum that's going to be different for person to person. And not everyone's going to see things as obvious, which is actually the problem that don't look up is satirizing to a certain extent. A major thing that I heard people say about it was is that it was just very obvious what it was doing. And I would actually say with Don't Look Up, that's kind of the point. That's what it's entirely about. The point is that in our society, it does feel obvious that global warming is real and is happening and it's going to be a huge problem. And yet, Nothing is being done. And that's 
the point of Don't Look Up. That it fe that somehow the obviousness and the the obviousness and the urgency are not aligned. And so the whole film is a play on situational irony, although it's not the same type of situational irony we normally see in things, wherein situational irony is when characters are in danger and they are not aware of it. This is a situational irony. I'm sorry, that's a bad explanation. Situational irony is when there is some type of danger or element that the audience is aware of that the character is not. In this situational irony, though, it's something quite different, wherein people know what the problem is, but they are still disconnected enough from the problem that they cannot act against it. So we, as the audience, sit there and go, for the love of God, do something about these fucking asteroids falling from the sky. But, sat but if we know and understand satire, then we know that by the end of the film, nothing will be done. Because satire says that's the problem, that nothing will be done. The satire... The fact that it all comes apart at the end is the satire. That's where it goes. Ooh. Just a little bit I had to get out there about Don't Look Up, which I think is a great movie. Had a lot of fun with it. But I'm not here to talk about that. Because what I'm also here to talk about is the problem with satire. And the problem with satire is that I had to spend all that time trying to barely explain what it is. In fact, right now, there are probably people listening to this who are still going, but wait, what is it? And the major problem with satire is that a good satire, if it misunderstood, will appear to be glamorizing the thing that it is meant to ridicule. Because satires will always look like what they are mocking. And that's where the problem begins. Take a look at... Take a look at that book by Machiavelli. You know, what is it? The Prince? For, year, for hundreds of years, people, scholars have been going back and forth on whether or not this was a serious text on how to be a fucking horrific dictator or or a satire of how to be a fucking horrible dictator there are people who say it was written seriously the machiavelli is a psychopath and then there are people who say the machiavelli is a satirical genius mocking these horrible beliefs Lots of satirical or even ironic comments are frequently mistranslated into the common vernacular of our society. Take pulling a person up by your bootstraps. It's meant to be ironic because you cannot physically do it. It's impossible. You know what a bootstrap is? It's that, you know on your shoe, that little thing that hangs up the back so you can try and pull the heel up on your foot? The, shoe, the heel of the shoe, that is, up on your foot? That's a bootstrap. Try lifting yourself physically off the ground when you are standing in your shoes. It's not physically possible. It's meant to be satirical. It's meant to be an ironic comment to mock 
the rich looking down on the poor, but it has been adopted by conservatives as a real fucking thing, which is the thing conservatives do all the fucking time. It's fucking maddening. Take trickle-down economics. Trickle-down economics was a joke. It was a joke. And then here comes Ronald Reagan saying it like it means something. Trickle-down economics was the idea that if the rich got so super rich, their pockets would fill up, fill up with money, and there'd be too much money in their pockets, and it would literally fall out of their pockets, and rich people could, and poor people could pick it up off the fucking street. That's what trickle-down economics is, you god damn it, capitalism. And now we think of that as a serious thing. What the fuck? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting, I'm getting off topic. Because what I also want to talk about here is the satirical failing of the kick-ass movies. I don't know if you've seen the kick-ass movies, but the kick-ass movies are based on a crap on a comic book mini, a couple of a series of comic book miniseries by a comic book creator known as Mark Millar. Or maybe Miller? I don't know. He's Scottish. It's spelled M-L-L-A-R. My dumb, dumb American brains immediately think maybe that's Millar. But maybe, you know, it's like Millar. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, that was a terrible Scottish accent. I apologize to my ancestors. Jesus. <clears throat> but so here's the thing. So Kick-Ass was a comic book series. And it asked the satirical question of what it would be like to be a superhero in the real world, where magic and superpowers and ridiculousness didn't exist. What would that look like? And that was the idea behind Kick-Ass. So let me go through the story of Kick-Ass as best I can remember it from the movies and the comics. And I will describe to you the basic problem with what the movies do to the comics. The central figure of Kick-Ass is a teenage boy named Dave Lizuski. I, I don't, it's a Polish last name, I, I forget how to pronounce it. But Dave is it just an average dumbass teenager who one day gets the idea to try and be a superhero so he dresses up in a fucking wetsuit he gets some batons and he goes out to kick some ass and the first thing that happens is a couple of a couple of carjack a couple guys robbing cars beat stab him beat him up and then he wanders in front of a car and gets fucking hit by a car what happens next? Well, he has to have me metal rods basically put in his entire body. Gets metal plate in his head, and he's got significant nerve damage over most of his body so that he practically can't feel shit. And then he goes right back out to try superheroing some more. And he gets put on YouTube, although in the comics it's MySpace, because the comics old as fuck but in the movie it's you two actually wait a minute that doesn't line up these the movie was being made while the comic was still in production mark millar is just out of date on his was just out of date on his social media the movie updated it while it was happening oh my god ridiculous uh however 
once Kick-Ass gets out in the world and starts starts being a superhero and going viral, getting he sets up a website to get emails to to come and help people out with their problems. And th that's the rough thing of Dave, how Dave's adventures work. However, there are several other characters in the story who tie into Dave's story. They are another group of superheroes. A person named Big Daddy in the movie played by Nicolas Cage doing a very interesting, like, uh, um, Adam West-style Batman performance. And his daughter, played by uh, Chloe Grace Mortz. I believe that's correct. Uh, this was one of her earliest works, and she is very young. And essentially, he, he is Big Daddy, and he has been training his daughter, Hit Girl, to be a killing machine. Like martial arts, shooting them with, shoot, putting on flak jackets and shooting each other. It's fucking nuts. And they are effective superhero team going around murdering criminals. Then there's another superhero called the Red Mist, who is a rich boy who befriends kick-ass so that's your basic setup of characters that's that's the basics there now i'm going to go into how the films and comics diverge from each other and how it destroys the satire of the situation so in the film the first film this is there is a point in the movie at which i noticed immediately that it was about to diverge from the comic, which at the time was very disappointing, because up to a certain point in the movie, while I was watching it the very first time, I was like, oh man, they're really adapting this comic almost beat for beat. Well, they're changing, they're doing that differently, but it's still the same characters and still technically the same story, telegraphing the, the twist, but sure, whatever. And then there's a moment in the movie where I knew that they had changed it. And I knew that they had changed it in an aggressive and damaging manner. When we first meet Big Daddy and Kid and Hit Girl, we are informed. Uh, the backstory we are given is that they are on the run hunting uh, mobsters because mobsters killed Hit Girl's mother, and that her daddy is an ex-cop. And in the movie, there's a part where a other cop, a black cop named Marcus, confronts Big Daddy. And tells me he's got to stop it. And this was the immediate red flag for me when I was watching the movie. Because, you see, the thing about the story of Kick-Ass is that it has three major twists. There's three major story twists that are all, well, two of the major story twists are deeply connected to the satire. And the other one's more of just a story thing. One of those is that the Red Mist is, in fact the son of a mobster who is pretending to be the Red Mist to look, to get these other superheroes into a trap so that him and his family can kill them. Now, in the comic books, this is not told to us at the beginning, but if in the film, for some reason, it is. I don't, I don't know necessarily why the film felt it wanted to do Red Mist like that, wanted to give him more of a backstory, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe Christopher Mintz Platts, who plays Red Mist, was just super popular at the time. I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe they thought he was a rising star. I, I really don't know. 
But for some reason, they decided to do away with this twist and just tell you from the beginning, oh, by the way, he's the, he's the mobster's son, and you're going to see all the decisions he made that led up to him betraying Dave. Okay, fair enough. guess that's fine. But the other two things it betrays in the twist are the dramatic ones, and they totally destroy the satire of the film. Allow me to explain. The thing is about that story about Big Daddy's wife getting killed and, and him and his daughter being on this revenge kick to kill the mob and that he's a cop. Well, the thing you have to understand is in the comic books, that's a lie. Every word of that story is a lie. Big Daddy is not some hero. Big Daddy is a right-wing lunatic who lost his daughter in a in a divorce in a in a custody battle and then kidnapped her made up a story about how her mother was murdered her mother is not dead her mother is totally alive and appears in the second volume of the story but she's not dead he wasn't a cop the mob didn't kill their family but he did take his daughter so that he could train her to be an assassin and murder mobsters and they proceed to murder a shit ton of mobsters through that as part of his whole this is our new life together so that he can spend his life with his daughter murdering mobsters and shooting up abortion clinics because he's a right-wing fanatic yeah no the point big daddy's not a good guy big daddy is not nice big daddy is a lunatic a lunatic so what's the other twist the other twist that the movie messes up so in the comics there is a box a mystery box that Big Daddy and Hit Girl have. And we're not told what's in the mystery box. There's not a point where we know what's in the mystery box until the very end, when it is revealed that inside the mystery box is a bunch of vintage comic books that he's been selling to fund their war on crime. Because you see, this is, these twists are important to the satire of the story. Because in the comics, there's a point at which it feels like superheroes are becoming a real thing. That these people exist. That so slowly the world is changing around Dave. But in these moments, in these twists, we are brought crashing back down to the reality that superheroes are not real. And that these people are just lunatics in costumes. Dave is not a superhero. He is a dumbass teenager with, with fucking nerve damage. He doesn't have superpowers. He can just take a beating because he can't feel it. Big Daddy is not some virtuous hero making society a better place. He is, he is a lunatic father who has gone to an extreme to try and keep his daughter in his life in the worst possible way. And like, literally, I don't think there could be a worse possible way than that. The satire, the joke, is that these people are living a lie. That this is dangerous and stupid and not fun. But the problem is, is that the kick-ass movies sure as fuck make it look fun. Like, they make it look Hollywood fun. And the comic book is not Hollywood fun. The comic book is extremely grounded and brutal. In the movie, and I cannot stress this enough, it's fun. 
What do I mean by it's fun? Well, in the movie, the secret of what's in the box is not something mundane and grounded. It's a fucking jetpack with miniguns on it that Kick-Ass uses to, to fly to the mob boss headquarters at the end of the movie and shoot it up. He then... It, it's... It's... There's no jetpack in the fucking comic, okay? And if there was a jetpack in the fucking comic, it would have probably set his legs on fire or exploded. But this is not the end of where the satirical neutering is in Kick-Ass, because I almost forgot one of the most important plot twists and one of the characters. So in the, in the comic books, there's this girl that Kick-Ass likes. And, but she's one of the hot girls, and there's no way she'd ever be into him. But after he has his accident, because, when, because he stashed his superhero costume before the paramedics got him, he, there's a rumor going around his school that he was working as a gay prostitute and got beat the fuck up. And so now she wants to be friends with him because she has this weird high school girl fantasy of having a gay best friend. And so she's essentially using him for his gay best friend. Meanwhile, he's super into her and wants to bang. But he pretends to be, but he goes along with the gay thing, both to protect his secret identity, but also because it'll get him to be near her. Now, this was one of the moments where I absolutely lost it while I was watching the movie. Because, you see, in the comic books, there's a part where he goes to her to tell her the truth about who he is and that he is kick-ass. And he's, his plan is he thinks that she'll go out with him. She doesn't go out with him. She thinks he's a weird fucking creep who would lie about being gay to her. Now, in fairness, she's a fucking terrible trash-ass bitch that was homophobically using him to have a gay best friend who she would never have been interested in being friends with before that moment. But the point is that she has a logical reaction, which is she throws him out of her fucking house and is like, don't you ever come back here, you fucking creep. In the movie, they become, they start fucking. In the, I'm not, they just, they start going out, they start fucking, and it's a whole thing. It's a whole fucking thing. Ugh. It's fucked up. <clears throat> but, in the movie, in the movie, they get together because reasons, reasons, but this, this is the thing. This is the thing. The comic book kick-ass is using the anti-sarcasm. We're getting the believable, real response to the ridiculous thing. That's the satire element of the kick-ass comic. We go in, it wants us to expect the superheroine. But then it wants to take that away from us and be like, no, that's not the point. The point is, this would suck. And you wouldn't want to be part of it. But the other thing is that the movie takes the last act and it ramps it up to a big superhero spectacle instead of what happens in the comics. In the comics, in the comics, Big Daddy and Kick-Ass are kidnapped and Kick-ass, and they're both horrifically tortured. And then, they step up behind Big Daddy and just shoot him in the back of the head. And he's just dead. He goes out like that. It's brutal. It's quick. 
it's realistic. There is no speech. There is no moment. His death is not slow. It is brutal and immediate. In the movie, it's gotta be a whole fucking number. It's a whole fucking number. Oh my god. In the movie, what happens is the mobsters decide to live stream it on the internet. They tape them both to chairs and they start beating on them with, with knuckle dusters and fucking bats. Then they cover them in a bunch of... And then they cover them in fucking gas and proceed to about... And decide they're going to set them on fire on the internet. Hit Girl shows up. There's a whole slow motion strobe effect gunfight scene between her and them as she's trying to get to her dad in time who's about to be set on fire. And he gets set on fire and dies slowly in agony. They put the fire out. Most of the fire is on his legs and crotch. So I'm, I think he actually could have lived from that. Uh, but they put the fire out so that he could have one last dying speech to hit girl. <sighs> uh, which is what you do when you're making a character a hero whose sacrifice is justified and <sighs> Big Daddy is neither of these things. Big Daddy's death is not a noble sacrifice and his and he is not a hero. He is a terrible parent and an abuser. And you could say, Ruben, I feel like you're just mad that the movie doesn't have a scene where Hit Girl does cocaine and calls it Super Soldier Serum. And you know what? I am mad about that. In the comics, that party is awesome. And they basically replace it with adrenaline in the second movie. Which brings us to Kick-Ass 2. Kick-Ass 2 is based on Kick-Ass Volume 2, but also on the Hit Girl miniseries, which they have tried to splice together here into one movie. Of incredibly mixed and labored results. The satire is even deader as we move into the third movie. I mean, sorry, the second movie. Now, it should be noted in these two comic book series, the setup is that Mindy, a.k.a. Hit Girl, is now living with her mother, who's alive, and is married to a black cop named Marcus, who doesn't exist in the comic books before Volume 2. And meanwhile, uh, Kick-Ass is getting back into kick-assery, and he's making friends with a bunch of uh, superheroes who are, to be fair, mostly losers. And that's kind of meant to be the point. It becomes a whole... It's like a whole thing in Kick-Ass 2 that other people are putting on costumes and going around and doing community service. Then meanwhile, the Red Mist is now a supervillain called the Motherfucker, uh, here awkwardly wearing a costume made from his mother's old bondage costume, 
not making that up. It's a thing in the movie. Now, I, I, will, say, I will say this about the kick-ass movies, is that despite my numerous complaints with them as far as what they do in terms of the satiric neutering the satire of the films, they do have great casts. Like, all these movies have good actors in them, and they're all doing... No one's phoning it in. Like, even Kick-Ass 2 has Jim Carrey doing a, a ridiculous uh, character, and and it's got uh, John Leguizamo, and it's, it, it's got... Good, it has good actors doing good performances. So it part of me does feel bad shitting on these movies. But I just... I hate that they lost the satirical thread so fucking heavy. But back to Kick-Ass 2. The thing about Kick-Ass 2 is also that it's... Kick-Ass 2 is just weird, okay? For starters, I don't, I don't know how the ages worked between Kick-Ass 1 and Kick-Ass 2 because somehow... Hit Girl is now 15 when she's like 11 or 12 in the third in in the previous movie and Dave is somehow still in high school. Uh I, I guess mathematically that can work out if Hit Girl was maybe a little bit older than I thought she was. I But somehow they 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 are both going to high school in this movie. She's a freshman, my I guess he's a senior. I guess that's how it works out. But like the thing it's weird now because Chloe Grace Moore, it's def I was pretty sure is older than fifteen when she made this movie. And so now there's like a thing where her and Aaron Taylor Johnson's character start to develop sexual tension. And it's a little bit weird. I can't lie. It 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 seems weird. But then there's a whole plot line where Hit Girl and this is from Hit this this plot line is actually from Hit Girl, the, the miniseries where she goes to high school and she gets Involved with a group of mean girls. And, like, the thing about this... I forget what the girls were like in the comics. But they feel like some... Like, they feel like a man... They were written by a man who sat down and watched Mean Girls a bunch for, for like, inspiration. And then got all the wrong messages from that movie. And then tried to write teenage girls. Uh, except he made them hornier. Uh, yeah. Um... And there's just a bunch of ridiculousness with that. And I can't, I can't lie. I found the entire Mean Girls subplot to be incredibly cringy. And it all leads up to Hit Girl just using a sound-based weapon to make them shit and puke all over each other. I'm not even making that up. It's terrible CGI shit, too. The shit part's not as heavy as the puking. There's lots of puking. I don't know if that's your, like, your fetish or something. But also, why is everyone's puke in this movie, like, white? Like, like they've either been drinking a lot of milk or, like, cum. Like, just... There's no... Like, I don't... Like, everyone looks like they just stabbed Bishop the Android from Alien in the neck, and it's just leaking out his mouth. I don't, I don't know what that's about. <clears throat> But I don't have as much, nearly as much to say about the ridiculousness of Kick-Ass 2. Other than, let's talk about its ending. Because it all basically leads up to a whole thing where Kick-Ass forms a team. And then the motherfucker forms a team because he's got tons of mob money now. And, and, they, and they have two teams. And in the movie... They all some show up at motherfuckers' headquarters and battle it out there. But in the comic books, they meet on the streets. And it is a 
fucked up riot. Where, like, just people in costumes are fucking murdering each other in the streets. And it ends with the cops coming in and just arresting everybody. Regardless of whether or not they're heroes or good guys. Whether they're heroes or bad guys or whatever. Heroes, quote, heavy quotation marks. And it's just a fucking mess. And, and hit, and, uh... Kick-Ass has a fight on the roof with the motherfucker. And I forget how the book ends, but it's not nearly as dramatic as the movie, because in the movie, he falls through a window into a shark tank. And then there's an after-credit scene where he's in a hospital still, trying to get a glass of water, because a shark bit his dick off. And his legs, which is... He does not lose his arms and legs until after this until like way later in the comics and i'm pretty sure hit girl does it to him now the thing about these movies though is that they are rated r which means that while the satirical edges have been toned down the harder to swallow stuff like characters being inherently wrong and right-wing fascists these things have been toned down. The satirical edges just sort of slide it off of the film to make it seem fun and almost light-hearted sort of, what's the word, irreverent shenanigans, I guess. But they're still rated R. And what I mean by that is, is that a major problem with neutering of a satire is that, and this is especially true with this film, is that, you know, satire is edgy to begin with. But if you take a satire that is ridiculing and mocking behavior, and then you round off the edges of it so that it just seems like fun, then what you're left with is something that is quote-unquote fun, but also just edgy. And the kick-ass movies are edgy. They have a lot of violence, they have a lot of swearing, they have a lot of jokes. And a lot of them are pretty edgy and risque. There are slurs dropped. There's the the whole kick-ass two, for God's sakes, has a whole scene where the character's being homophobic just so just so that Hit Girl can like chop off their hand and tell them they're being homophobic. But yeah, once you remove the point that the, that the films are making, they just become about movies where violence and vigilantism are fun. And that's sort of weird when the message of the comics is in fact the opposite, that being a superhero would suck, that it would cost you everything you have, that it would be brutal, that it would be difficult, and that you'd have to be kind of a lunatic to even attempt such a mad thing. That's what those movies are about. I mean, sorry, that's what those comics are about. The films dramatically downplay how mentally ill Hit Girl is. She has been irrevocably... She's, I shouldn't say irrevocably damaged. It's the wrong message about mental health. But she has been severely damaged and is not receiving any real mental health help throughout any of the movies 
or I think even the comics, or at least not any successful mental health help. Dave and Hit Girl are addicted to being these superheroes. That's just the way they are. And in the comics, this comes through, that these people are lunatics, that they are out of their minds, that this behavior has cost them more than it has given them, and yet they can't walk away from it. The satire of Kick-Ass suggests that you do not want to be a superhero, that vigilantism is bad, and that violence and hypersexualization will only bring you problems. The movies suggest the opposite, which is that it's a damn good time. And that is ultimately the problem with satire. Is that satire will always be mistake satire is meant to be a ridicule of things. And satire will also will ultimately always be mistaken for the thing that it is ridiculing or commenting on. This is a tale as old as time. Just look at the Beastie Boys fight for your right to party. I'm not saying that's satirical, but it's at least ironic and it's at least parody. But at the same time, it was a song that was written to make fun of all the hair metal songs about partying and being an asshole. It was making fun of those songs. But today, we remember it as being one of the most iconic of those kinds of songs. Irony does not read to people who are not looking for irony. And this will always be the tragic problem with satire, is that satire is not idiot-proof. Satire is the least foolproof thing there is. Satire has a history of being hated by the people it agrees with and being championed by the people it is meant to mock. What is the solution to that problem? Honestly, I have no fucking idea. And I don't even know if I've made it clear enough to you what satire is. But I hope this helped. I hope this gave you some idea. Maybe I need another person here to ask me what the fuck I mean so that I can find new words to explain it. But here I am, doing my best with what I can. I hope you now have at least a little bit of a window into satire. And what the hell's wrong with it? Here we are, talking to the professor, an archaeologist, Dr. Lawrence Mayweather. Hello and welcome, Dr. Lawrence Mayweather. Could you tell us about your new discovery? Well, yes, it's actually quite fascinating. We have uncovered a new play. A play written in ancient Greece by a man named Testicles. Now, the it is actually quite interesting. It's not surprising that it was lost, as it is what is called a satyr. A satyr? Yes, a satyr. It's a, a play that mixes dramedy and comedy together. And what is, what is the name of this, of the piece? Well, based on our rough translations, we would, the name appears to be Flatulence and Death, an examination of 
how human beings ultimately spend a life flatulating and then we die under tragic circumstances. Very existential. I see. Absolutely fantastic.